the big question is, what is the gene? The nucleus contains the master molecule of life, DNA. The most exciting molecule around. The human genome is a very big place. It's been described as an explosion in a spaghetti factory. How would we find genes for human disease? How would we find the genes underlying cancer? This is Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information. The great scientific challenges transcend national frontiers and national prejudices. For the language of science has always been universal. Welcome to the first episode of Base Pairs, a new podcast from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. I'm Andrea Alfano, and my co-host Brian Stollard and I... That's me, by the way. We're not scientists, but we do get to spend quite a bit of time talking to the scientists around the lab. When you sit down and talk with a scientist, you get to hear all about the stuff that academic journals usually leave out. This podcast is a way for us to share these stories with you. Some of them will be about recent discoveries, some will be historical. Some will reveal insights about the brain or body, while others will delve into ideas for protecting our planet. But they will all be rooted in one magical family of molecules. Nucleic acids, the molecules that make life possible. Nucleic acid is what the NA and DNA stands for. And DNA? Well, that's the blueprint for life. It's how cells know what proteins to make, what structures to form, which cells go where. All of this is dictated by that essential little molecule. But curiously enough, even a year before James Watson and Francis Crick announced their discovery of the double helix, scientists were still arguing about whether DNA was in fact the incredible blueprint we now know it is. In the early 1950s, there was a clear divide among experts. On one side were the scientists who saw DNA for what it was, the seemingly modest molecule that somehow wields the power to pass information from one generation to the next. Then there was the other camp, experts who looked at DNA, this large yet simple molecule that's essentially the same four letters, or bases, strung together and thought, there's no way, it's too simple. This latter group even went as far as to call DNA the stupid molecule. They argued that proteins, which have incredibly complex structures, were the master molecules behind genetics. Stupid molecule? That's pretty harsh. You'd expect such polar groups to be at each other's throats. You might think so, but apparently most academics at the time were just thrilled to be part of a new and exciting field. The idea that you could understand Gregor Mendel's wonderful data at the level of a molecule was uh, entrancing. That's Frank Stahl. A professor of biology emeritus at the University of Oregon. And he's talking about Mendel, the father of genetics. The guy who used peas to show the world that heredity followed strict rules. In 1952, Frank was just a wide-eyed graduate student newly arrived to Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And I said, well, my boss wanted to get rid of me for the summer, so he shipped me down here. That's what Frank told people anyway. His thesis advisor had actually sent him to work in the kitchen at the lab, but he was quickly enamored with the science that was going on, not to mention the party life. Hey, I don't remember an awful lot about the summer, I'll have to tell you, uh, because 
it was a pretty wild summer. But I do remember that I was convinced that I had to work in that field. <laughs> this is kind of hard to believe, really. Scientific greats gallivanting around the harbor by night, making world-changing discoveries by day, even while still nursing their hangovers. Uh, let's not go any further with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's what, fair. I, what I remember of it was great. <laughs> still, Frank does remember that there was cause for celebration that summer. Remember that big debate we mentioned earlier? Protein versus DNA? Someone had all but settled it. People there were talking about the experiment. People were pleased, impressed, and considered it real progress. He's talking about the famous experiment conducted by Al Hershey and Martha Chase, one of the final nails in the coffin for the theory that protein carried genetic information. So what was this experiment? Put simply, the researchers put a bunch of bacteria in a blender, and what came out was strong evidence that DNA carried the blueprints for life. Isn't that a bit too simple? Sure, but that was kind of the beauty of this experiment. Modern scientists have come to call it Hershey heaven if you have an experiment that not only works, but you can do every day. Well, let's maybe break it down a little bit more. Alright, let's. Alright listeners, meet the bacteriophage type of virus that turns bacteria into its own personal factories. Today, we know that these little critters physically inject DNA into their victims, hijacking the bacteria's machinery to produce more phages. Phages are what scientists call bacteriophages for short. And like other viruses, they aren't exactly alive. They're made of just a protein shell with DNA inside, and they don't have the rest of the stuff they need to reproduce. So they sneak into bacteria and steal theirs. It's like if Skynet had to enslave humans to make more Terminators, kind of like that. Uh, sure. But back in the 1950s, it wasn't clear exactly how phages hijacked their victims. All experts knew was that this little virus... It looks kind of like a turkey baster with robotic legs. Okay, they knew this turkey baster would latch onto the outside of a bacterial cell, and then, a little later, dozens of new phages could be found within. Frank, like Jim Watson before him, wound up taking a course on phages during his summer at the lab. And he quickly learned why they were ideal for study. Phages could multiply, mutate, segregate their genes, genetically recombine. They could do everything it seemed that higher organisms could do when it came to the transmission of hereditary material. And, as we mentioned before, they are also made of just protein and DNA. No other organism yet discovered was so perfectly designed to settle the genetic molecule debate. Hershey and Chase were also well aware of this, and that's why they chose to work with these simple viruses. They designed two tags, one to mark the phage's protein, and the other for their DNA. They theorized that if one of these molecular tags also wound up inside the bacteria, that would indicate which molecule is providing the blueprint for the new phage babies. Still, there was one hitch to this plan. Parent phages latch securely onto the outside of their bacterial victims, which means that some tags were present outside of the bacteria. But Hershey and Chase were only interested in what wound up inside, so the scientists designed an elegant solution. They used a blender. Vroom. <laughs> That was a good blender impression. Yeah, right? It was really impressive. <laughs> Normally, when I think of lab equipment, I envision fancy microscopes, test tubes, 
super specialized machines that I have no idea what they even could possibly do. But that's not what this was. That's right. Hershey and Chase dumped all their hard work into a metal-wearing blender, hardly different than your standard kitchen blender, and hit the power button. The blending dislodged and separated the phage shells from the infected bacteria. When they then looked inside these bacteria, they saw a whole lot of DNA tag and hardly any protein tag. That was really compelling evidence that DNA was the blueprint a phage factory needs. Hershey and Chase published their work in April of 1952, just before the start of the summer phage course. The perfect opportunity to party, you'd think. But unlike the rest of the lab, that just wasn't their style. He spent his summer sailing uh, on Lake Superior, I think. That's Frank again, remembering Hershey. In that way, he escaped the summer crowds, uh, got genuine rest away from the laboratory, because when he was at Cold Spring Harbor, he was a compulsive worker. He worked two sessions each day. He worked from early morning till lunch, then he went home and took a nap, and then he came back and worked on into the night, day after day. This is not to say that you can't be fun-loving to do great research. Plenty of other scientists have been known as the life of the party. Still, many will argue that it was Hershey's reserved nature and penchant for detail that helped him craft such an elegant experiment. And as for Martha Chase, she shared this understated nature. Uh, she was a rather shy person, uh, reticent, uh, not easy to converse with. Hmm. Kind of uh, like Hershey in that regard? Yes, indeed. But a nice person. And I know what you're all thinking. What about that third celebrity? The blender that changed the field of genetics as we know it? Well, according to biologist Jerry Rubin, somehow even it eschewed the limelight. When I was in Ray Jesselin's lab, I needed a, a blender. And he said to go to the shed and look if there were any blenders there. And I went back and I actually came back with this little metal blender. And, it was, and he said, oh my God, this is the blender from the Hershey Chase experiment. And then for the next four years, this blender sat on Ray Jesselin's desk with his pencils in it as this pencil holder. And then finally, I guess I went to the museum. The blender is indeed in CSHL's archives now. Hershey and Chase may not have been the type to boast about their work, but CSHL is certainly proud to have them in its history. It's been about 65 years since the Hershey Chase experiment 65 years since the big question in biology was, how in the world is genetic information passed from generation to generation? And now scientists are able to take basic scientific insights about genetic inheritance and answer really specific questions like, how did these two boys from Utah inherit a severely disabling disorder that no one else in the family has? As you might suspect, we didn't pull that last question completely out of nowhere. We know someone who asked it and amazingly was able to answer it. My name is Golston Lyon. I work here at the lab, Coltsman Harbor Laboratory. I'm on faculty here in genetics. Um, and yes, I am a child and adolescent and adult psychiatrist. That is our friend Golson, and he spent the last decade not only investigating harmful mutations, but also getting to know the people who are affected by them. 
many, many people that are doing genetics research and they've never really interacted longitudinally with people, um, with patients, you know, people that have real uh, diseases. Real patients like a pair of disabled brothers. Riker and Daxon, 15 and 13 respectively. Who Golson had the pleasure of meeting back in 2006. All right. Hey, Riker. How are you? Hello. Can I see your palm like that for me? Put your hand over. <gasps> Look at that. Wow. Wow. Oh, and something about no them. Well, a lot of things, actually. Caught Golson's attention right away. These boys have very severe intellectual disability. Trouble walking. Their gait is a little bit off. Cramping in their muscles. Very odd facial features. Problems with their ears. Very high. All telltale signs of one or many genetic disorders. Just no one was sure which. Pick it up. Can you pick that up for mom? Hand it to mom. That's better than he normally does. That's Jaylene Lee, Riker and Daxon's mother, and she's a pretty incredible person. Um, I was introduced to Dr. Lyon through Alan Rope. He worked at the University of Utah in their genetics department and felt like we would be good candidates to push further than just the normal genetics testing. Do they ever uh, lock their legs when they're walking at all? Or is this about the way they always walk? They would plan meetings, sometimes in an office, sometimes at the park, and Golson would just get to know them, all the time taking notes and video. And neither of them has ever said a word, right? Um, just, Jackson does some voice inflection uh-huh. that kind of imitates words. And Riker, about the only thing he can say is mom. I mean, their personalities are very different because they're two different children, but their, their disability themselves that was kind of one of those things where we went, okay, this is definitely some sort of genetic basis, and we just proceeded from there. Okay, so everybody's got 46 chromosomes. That's 23 pairs? 23 for us humans, anyway. Right, but there's one pair in particular that really separates us guys and gals. They're often called the sex chromosomes. In males, you have both an X chromosome and and a Y chromosome, and in females, you have two X chromosomes. Uh, And in boys, of course, they only have one X chromosome, so there's only one X chromosome being expressed. In women, they have this thing called dosage compensation, where one of the X chromosomes is randomly inactivated. Basically, the genome is protecting itself. You know, compensating. Because too much X chromosome can kill a cell. And Golson knew that when one X is carrying a harmful mutation, that X is more likely to be turned off. It's a lot like a second line of defense that we guys just don't have. In this family, um, with the mother, we speculated that because this was in the two boys, that it might be on the X chromosome. Golson ended up doing something called an X chromosome skewing analysis. Which is essentially a blood test of the mother that shows which copy of the X got shut off. In a typical woman, you'd expect to see a 50-50 ratio. And yet, when Golson tested the Lee family, a rare 99 to 1 ratio turned up in Jaylene. It seemed that for some reason, her cells were strongly favoring one X over the other. We still don't know which of the chromosomes was being expressed, but we kind of assume that probably the skewing was favoring the copy that does not have the mutation on it. And so we ended up conjecturing that this was an X-chromosome-linked disorder in the two boys. And that's it, right? He looked at the X and found what was wrong? Well, not exactly. 
we ended up doing whole genome sequencing in that family because I wanted to make sure that, that we didn't miss something that was not on the X chromosome. Basically, the odds were that there was something wrong on the X, but that didn't rule out the possibility of troublesome mutations on the other 22 chromosomes. What did they find? TAF1. That's T-A-F and the number one? Exactly. Riker and Daxton both had the same mutation in this gene called TAF1, which was right where Golson expected it to be. On the X. And it was the only meaningful mutation shared between these two brothers. But wait. You're saying that a mutation in this one gene hinders development in the brain, the body, everything? Yeah, TAF1 influences how cells read the information in the rest of the genome, and so any trouble with it can cause a cascade of problems. Think about it like a traffic accident. So, a mutation of a less important gene would sort of be like a fender bender on a side street. It could slow some things down, but you're probably getting the work on time. Right, but a mutation on TAF1 could be like a major collision on a highway. Everyone's going to be late. Or, in Riker and Daxton's case, that means global developmental delay. And that's it, isn't it? Now we can say for sure what's causing this disease. Not quite. The problem was that Golson only had the case of the Lee brothers to work with. And in science, a sample size of just two? That doesn't cut it. So he started searching. Going to many conferences, putting up posters, giving talks, lots of networking where I would sort of meet with other medical geneticists and I would show them the pictures of the boys and ask them if they'd seen anything like this before. Really trying to find a bunch of other families. In the end, and we're talking about years of searching here, Golson and his colleagues identified a whopping 14 cases worldwide. It's amazing that's all they found. But you gotta remember, this is but one mutation in the estimated 20,000 or so protein-coding genes humans have. And, it's important to note, this is a diagnosis, not a cure. It isn't going to solve Riker and Daxton's problems, and it's not even going to solve all of Jaylene's problems. When I say that they have global developmental delay and a TAF1 gene mutation, they just look at me and go, well, what the hell does that mean? It doesn't really give us any further heads up than we had before. But on our side, like for me personally, it's great to know that we're, we're coming upon those types of things. I recently spoke with Jaylene, and she made me realize that the fact that her boy's syndrome is undefined, it makes getting help all the more difficult. Down syndrome families deal with certain things, autistic families deal with certain things, and, they, and they're able to converse and bounce ideas off of each other. And to be honest, I feel kind of alone in my situation because nobody really understands exactly what it is that we're going through. And it's almost like they're not accepted without some sort of a name. Jaylene even resorted to calling her boy's disease Reich-Dax, a combination of their names, Riker and Daxton. You get people that are like, can I ask you what they have? I, I don't know. And they look at me funny, almost like I don't even care to know type of scenario. And it's like from there, it just kind of stuck that they have Reich-Dax disease. And, you know, people kind of settle down and are like, oh, okay, that sucks. And then it's like, that makes sense, which I don't know why it makes sense, but it's fine. <laughs> so... So that's kind of how we've, we've dealt. That's how they've dealt. But now that impromptu name may become an official part of medical texts across the world. You know, we, you and I have talked about um, sort of trying to name this syndrome after the two boys. So 
Um, in the current paper, we have down that we're calling it Reich-Dax syndrome with capital R-Y-K, capital D-A-X. Um, is that um, something that you're okay with? Absolutely, yes. The thing is, while a name might seem pretty arbitrary, it gives people a way to come together and talk about the disease for the first time. What I'm hoping is that the families will now start to communicate with each other more through maybe social media like Facebook, um, and maybe we'll begin to get a better idea of the natural course of the illness. And that's an important point. Golson and his colleagues kept the Lee family in the loop even as they pressed on to discover other cases of Reich Dax. And learning about these patients has given Jaylene some peace of mind about Riker and Daxton's futures. We're ready to go in whatever direction life takes us, whether, you know, something to do with this disease that they have affects it or not. It, you know, our, our path is, is there and we just need to move forward and why we still have them, maybe we can help someone else. It's a forward-looking perspective, Jaylene's, and it's one that Golson hopes other families will share. Every test, every grain of knowledge is just another step towards a better future for those affected by this disease. This is just a small piece of the puzzle. You know, there's so much more that needs to be done in terms of trying to figure out if there's anything that we can do to, to help the children. Long, super long story <laughs> is that I'm happy that the boys are here, that, that we are able to help. So that's it. Our first episode. Done. Sorry for my little rant. <laughs> well, I think I've told it all. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for having me on, the, on this podcast. Bye-bye. We'd like to thank our guests, Frank Stahl, Golson Lyon, and Jaylene Lee for being our guinea pigs, as well as Broke for Free and Chris Zabrinsky for providing the music in this episode. And we'd like to thank you, listener, for tuning in. We'll be back next month with another episode, but in the meantime, you can check out our Lab Dish blog. There, you'll find bonus photos and videos about the episode you just heard. You can also join in on the conversation and tell us what you think of the show. We're coming to you from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, a private, not-for-profit research and education institution at the forefront of molecular biology and genetics. So if you'd like to support the research that goes on here, you can find out how to do that at cshl.edu. And feel free to pay us a visit. Between our undergraduate research program, meetings and courses, graduate school, the DNA Learning Center, and public events, there really is something for everyone. I'm Andrea. And I'm Brian. And this is Base Pairs. More science stories soon.